Ladies and gentlemen, the title of our first panel of the day poses the question, the Singapore economy, aging yet dynamic? May I now invite members of the first panel on stage. Our speakers will consider the human capital and economic policies necessary to enable businesses and workers to harness longevity dividends. Moderating this panel is Ms. Wong Su Yen, Board and C-Suite Advisor. She will introduce the panel and the speakers. Well, good morning again, ladies and gentlemen. I am delighted to be here and uh, even more so to introduce our two panelists for this session to discuss the Singapore economy aging yet dynamic. Mr. Ravi Menon, in fact, needs little introduction. He has been Managing Director of the MAS since 2011. On the international front, he is a member of the Financial Stability Board Steering Committee. He chaired the FSB Standing Committee on Standards Implementation from 2013 to 2017, the IMF, the International Monetary and Financial Committee, deputies meetings from 2011 to 2015, and the APEC Senior Officials meetings in 2009. Previously, he was Permanent Secretary at the Ministry of Trade and Industry and Deputy Secretary at the Ministry of Finance, where he was responsible for fiscal policy and government reserves. Joining Ravi is Mr. Sean Tan, who, le who leads Mercer's Career and Talent Consulting Services in Singapore. He has 15 years of consulting and corporate HR practitioner experience. His recent consulting engagements were an industry-wide job redesign, competency framework development, and workforce study initiatives. Prior to Mercer, Sean was VP of HR in leading global investment firm, and prior to that, he held various senior roles in the ICT and public sectors, including the head of talent development and succession planning, head of workforce planning and analytics, and the head of talent acquisition. Please join me in giving our panelists a very warm welcome. <laughs> Two years ago, I visited the southern part of Italy the part that looks like the heel of the boot. Now, many of you will know that Italy is a country blessed with beautiful scenery, delicious food, luxury goods, you know, think Gucci, Ferragamo, fast cars, Ferrari, Lamborghini, so on, rich history and elegant architecture. But as we drove through these charming towns, there was something that bothered me. It was impossible to avoid the stark reality that this was truly the old world. You see, to be honest, there were times when I felt I was passing through a series of ghost towns. The buildings had a sort of faded glory about them. There were no children in the streets. Factories were shut. Shops were quiet. And in the town centers were clusters of elderly men and some women reading newspapers and sipping coffee. You see, Italy is the country with the world's second largest aged population. In fact, second only to Japan with more than 22% of the population over 65. Now in Singapore, in a mere 12 years from now, 27% of our population will be seniors, the same as Japan today. Now looking across this room, I think most of us are planning to be here in 12 years. So the key question I'd like us to reflect on in this session is, how then should we enable and create the type of life we want to see for ourselves in the future and indeed for our children. So the first panel of today's conference challenges us to envision a future that is aging yet 
dynamic. Some of the questions I would encourage us to discuss in this session include, with an older workforce, what will it take for us to maintain economic dynamism? What is the role of immigration? How can we both minimize as well as manage the costs associated with longer life? What will it take for us to do this collectively as a society? What paradigm and mindset shifts will be required? For example, as they relate to social risk pooling or intergenerational transfers. And how can we keep an aging population economically engaged, not just for the fiscal benefits it brings to the country and the individual, but equally to maintain physical, mental, and social well-being. Again, what paradigm and mental and mindset shifts will be required. I would now like to turn the time over to our esteemed panelists, who will each speak for 20 minutes. Thereafter, we will open the floor to discussion and debate in the hope that we can land on a number of perspectives where there's broad resonance. Let me first invite Ravi, who will challenge us to consider economic dynamism amidst demographic change. Ravi. Ladies and gentlemen, <clears throat> good morning. I want to first thank IPS for the opportunity to be here, um, share my thoughts with such a large group. I also want to commend IPS for convening this conference on what I think is a very important topic, uh, some would say existential topic, the implications of demographics for us as an economy and as a society as a city, and as a country. I'll focus on the economic implications, what it means for economic growth and economic dynamism. And the two are different. Cover two broad themes. First, what I would describe as our demographic trilemma. What are the constraints and what are the choices we need to make? Second, I'd like to argue that demographics is not destiny. Why economic dynamism is not a numbers game and how we can remain dynamic amidst demographic change. First, leading up to our trilemma. The starting point of all demographic analysis is the sustained decline in Singapore's total fertility rate, or TFR. We must be one of the few countries in the world where people know what TFR means, because that's such an upfront issue for us. It fell from around 1.8 in the 1980s. Now, 1.8 is already below the replacement level of 2.1 fell to about 1.3 in the early 2000s. And this has weighed heavily on resident population growth. And you can see that pattern, the two lines. You can see, you can kind of discern three distinct phases over the last 30 years. The first 10 years in the 1990s, both the TFR and the resident population growth declined in tandem. In the 2000s, the TFR continued to decline, the orange line, but resident population growth recovered. Basically, this reflected net immigration and new citizens 
and PR growth, permanent residence. 2010 onwards, by then the TFR was ar around 1.2 to 1.3, and resident population growth fell sharply before also stabilizing, basically reflecting a tightening of immigration flows. So this is a broad pattern in TFR and resident population growth, and it's a starting point uh, of all demographic analysis. Now, the next two slides I have are a thought experiment. It's not a forecast or prediction, but just to illustrate the implications of having very low resident population growth. First, let us assume zero net immigration starting from this year. The resident working age population, this is defined as Singapore citizens and permanent residents, between the ages of 15 and 64, will begin to shrink from around 2020. Exact year is not key. What's key is that it's not very far off. And by 2035, the working age population, 15 to 64, will decline by a cumulative 3.5%. Second, let us assume zero net increase in foreign workers from now on. The overall labor force will decline gradually from around 2022, driven fundamentally by the shrinking in the resident labor force, as you can see in the charts there. Now, these two assumptions taken together Zero net migration, that means no new citizens or no new permanent residents on a net basis, and no additional foreign workers, means the stock is constant, will have important implications for economic growth. Now, from the perspective of the supply side or capacity or potential of the economy, GDP growth is basically the sum of productivity growth and labor force growth. This means holding labor for productivity growth constant. The decline in the labor force growth will have direct impact on economic growth. This correlation seems to be borne out broadly in the past. If labor force growth falls to near zero, as we saw earlier, under those assumptions, then the only source of GDP growth is productivity growth. And if productivity growth stays around at about 1.5%, which is what we've averaged over the last seven, eight years since the global financial crisis, then GDP growth over the medium term will also be around there. This then is the demographic trilemma. We have three possible objectives, and various people in Singapore have advocated each one or two or three of these objectives. The trilemma is this. At any one time, we can achieve only two. We have to choose which two. Now, the three possible objectives are positive labor force expansion, two, zero net immigration, as some would prefer, three, no increase in the share of foreign work workers in the total workforce. So what are the trade-offs? Now, if you look at the corners of the triangle, that's where the trade-offs are. If we want labor force to grow and zero net immigration, 
That's the bottom left of the uh, triangle. Then we have to allow the share of foreign workforce to rise in the total workforce. Now, if we want the labor force to grow and keep the foreign worker share stable, that's the bottom right, then we have to allow net immigration to increase the stock of new citizens and PRs. Now, if we want zero net immigration and want to keep the foreign workforce stable, then we have to accept zero labor force growth. That's the top of the triangle. The trilemma represents the constraints. I've put them in rather stark terms to illustrate uh, more vividly what the choices are. And collectively, as a society, we have to decide which corner of the trilemma we want to be at. I will argue later on that we don't need to be literally at a corner, that there are more balanced solutions we can seek within the trilemma. But it illustrates the starkness of the choices. Are there ways to escape the trilemma, or at least soften its hard constraints? Two possible solutions. Again, no prizes for guessing. We've talked about this for decades. One, an increase in fertility. Two, an increase in the resident labor force participation rate. Now, recovery in the TFR is the best and most lasting solution that we can have. But its positive effects on the labor force can only be achieved over the very long run. So here's another thought experiment. Assume the TFR rises steadily from the current level, 1.3, to 2.1 replacement rate over the next 15 years. Now, obviously, it will have immediate impact on resident population, and this effect will accumulate over time. So that's shown by the blue line. Immediately, you have a pickup in resident populations. I've described this as the cumulative additions in percentage terms over a baseline where the TFR does not increase. So you see the blue line shooting up quite nicely. But the recovery in the TFR will not have any perceptible impact on the labor force and GDP growth until nearly 2040, as shown by the orange line. It will take time for the extra babies born in the next 15 years to start entering the labor force. So while this is the most lasting solution to our economic challenges, it can only work in the very long run. Past TFR trends are already baked in the system. Now, there is a second way to soften the trilemma, that's to increase the resident labor force participation rate, uh, LFPR for short. <clears throat> now, this will have <clears throat> immediate payoffs. But even at plausible stretch targets, the effects on the labor force growth will be quite limited. Singapore's LFPR, labor force participation rate, which is defined as the share of the resident population aged 15 to 64 who are in the labor force. This rate is about 75.4. It's not bad by OECD standards. But there is scope to increase. Japan is at 76.8, Germany 77.9, the Netherlands 79.9, Sweden 82.1. Now if you decompose our LFPR, our LFPR participation rate for older workers is not bad. 
it is female labor force participation rate where we are lagging behind. There is a fairly large gender gap among those in their 40s and 50s. The gap between the female labor force participation rate and the male labor force participation rate in Singapore, this gap is higher than in the leading OECD countries. In many advanced economies, women tend to return to the workforce after their prime childbearing years. In Singapore, this is much less prevalent. Now, if we can make it easier for our women to return to the workforce after they've had their children, we can narrow the gender gap vis-a-vis -vis the advanced economies. So another thought experiment. Let us assume we narrow our gender gap by 2035 from current levels. Currently, the gender gap is about 15 percentage points. This is a difference in the participation rate between males and females in that age cohort. 15 percentage points. Assume we narrow it to 11 percentage points, which is the rate in Germany and the Netherlands. So you'll have a cumulative addition to the percentage of the resident workforce quite early. Well, what you'll notice is that it's small. It translates to an increase in the labor force by 2035 of only about 2%. So, the demographic trilemma that I just described presents the constraints and choices facing us. Now, we can soften it by raising the TFR and the LFPR, the participation rate, and we must continue to step up those efforts. Of course, having babies or returning to work are deeply personal choices. No one makes these choices in order to boost labor force growth or GDP growth, and we should not even suggest uh, to people to do so. Basically, government's policies to encourage fertility and labor force participation, government does that because that is what many people desire for their own fulfillment. Many women do want to return to work, but they face a whole lot of constraints. We must make it easier for them to do so as a society. Now, the government has made some significant efforts to invest in childcare, facilitate more flexible working arrangements, whether we can do more, that's a matter of a debate, but collectively as a society, we must make it easier to do so and continue to push on this front. Likewise, many married couples want to have children, not for GDP. Children are a source of joy, they're a fulfillment of love, and we want to have more than we currently have. Again, the policies on marriage and parenthood are guided by this higher purpose. And a growing labor force is, of course, a happy economic byproduct. In addressing the trilemma, I would say we should also make balanced choices. We must accept a slower rate of labor force growth. The demographic slowdown, the underlying demographic slowdown is so severe that it is neither feasible nor desirable to try to offset it completely through immigration or foreign workers. But we must allow a certain rate of net immigration to augment the resident population. And this is not just about numbers. It is about rejuvenation and expanding the talent base. Now, obviously, we cannot keep increasing our share of foreign workforce indefinitely. But we must be flexible in allowing fluctuations in the ratio according to economic cycles and circumstances and opportunities. Finally, we must reframe 
our question on foreign workers. It is not about how many foreign workers industry wants or society can afford to have, but what number and kind of foreign workers we need to maximize the job and wage opportunities for Singaporeans. Foreign workers, in short, must be a complement to the local workforce. So much for the trilemma. Let me move on to the second broad theme, that demographics is not destiny. We can sustain our economic dynamism in the face of demographic change. First, we should not grow despondent over our slowing rate of economic growth. The empirical experience of countries, and this is a panel data of cross-section uh, cross and time series, shows that over time, there's a negative relationship between the level of income and the growth of income. Not a very perfect relationship, as you can see from the scatter, a broad relationship, a negative relationship. Countries with low level of GDP per capita tend to have higher rates of GDP growth. This is called catch-up in the literature. Countries with higher levels of GDP per capita tend to grow slower. They are more mature. Singapore is a mature economy, as you can see. It has one of the highest levels of per capita income in the world. So we will not be able to sustain 6 to 7% rates of growth that were seen a decade ago. And there is nothing to feel despondent about it. In fact, our position above that line that is a kind of mean of the relationship shows actually that we've managed to grow faster than countries with similar levels of per capita income. But while we must accept a lower rate of growth than before, as a global city, we cannot afford to grow too slowly either. I think Janadas alluded to this quite eloquently uh, earlier this morning. I understand Heng Chi will also talk about global cities later. It seems many leading global cities grow at about 25 to 3.5%, faster than the national average of the countries that they are a part of. London has averaged 3.3% annual growth since the financial crisis. Sydney, 2.9%. San Jose, which encompasses Silicon Valley, has averaged 2.7%. It is hard to imagine a dynamic city growing at less than 2%, or worse still, 1.5%. It will be unattractive to investors and talent, including the city's own investors and talent. A reasonably good rate of growth helps to create opportunities and preserve a sense of progress and hope, particularly among the young. It will also facilitate upward social mobility. The experience of some of these other leading cities suggests that demographics is not destiny. Yes, vibrant cities do attract people, and they add to growth. But their main source of growth and dynamism is not headcount, but productivity. This is not an in-depth study, just stylized facts looking at a few leading cities. About two-thirds of overall GDP growth in the cities shown here is due to productivity improvements. In comparison, productivity has accounted for only half of Singapore's GDP growth. So there is clearly scope to do better and sustain our dynamism. How can we do this? First, Singapore has scope to reap human capital dividends. 
from the continuous investments we've made in education and training in the past decades. This is quite dramatic until I uh, eyeballed it carefully myself. As recently as 2000, 45% of the resident workforce had below secondary school education. Only 12% had university education. In just one and a half decades, now this is not the effort during one and a half decades, it's accumulation of efforts made over previous decades. Those ratios have converged. The proportion with less than secondary education has dipped now to below 30%. And the proportion of university education has more than doubled to nearly 30%. The two ratios, the two orange bars at the opposite ends of the spectrum are the same now. The effects of this transformation in human capital endowment will continue to be felt in the productive capacity of the workforce. With higher levels of education, the ability of the workforce to take on more complex tasks and to leverage on technology is substantially stronger. There is more to come. Now, the share of the university educated is not likely to increase much more. But there's still plenty of scope to reduce the share of those with less than secondary education at the left-hand end of that spectrum. We should see growing proportions of the workforce in the middle of the education spectrum, secondary education, post-secondary education, diploma, professional qualifications that need not amount to a degree but helps to equip them with skills and transform the nature of many jobs, raising standards and quality enabling productivity and wages to rise. Second, there is scope to improve the quality of the foreign workforce. We should increasingly be concerned about the skills of the foreign workers that we take in, rather than just the numbers. In fact, more skilled workers, foreign workers, will mean we need less of them. The trend of improving the quality of the foreign manpower has already begun. The proportion of work permit holders has declined by about 10 percentage points over the last 10 years, while the proportion of SPAS and employment pass holders, higher skilled, higher education levels, has increased by 10 percentage points. This trend must continue as we restructure the economy towards higher value, deeper skills, and more pervasive digitalization. Third, there is scope to increase productivity and efficiency in many domestic services jobs. Let's consider wages in four occupations, plasterer, childcare worker, baker, and security guard across four countries, Singapore, Australia, the US, and UK. The slide shows <coughs> wages in these occupations as a percentage of the median wage in that country. In Singapore, the average pay in these four occupations range from about 30 to 60% of the local median wage. In Australia, these occupations have much higher wages, much closer to the median wage in Australia. It's also higher in the US and the UK, pattern slightly different for some occupations. There is scope to further professionalize these jobs in Singapore, increase the skills content, leverage on technology, improve business process, improve the quality of the output and this will enhance productivity, help to support higher wages in these occupations. In fact, professionalizing much of the so-called rank-and-file jobs in Singapore will help to strengthen and broaden the middle class. 
make for a more equitable society. And Singapore can do this. This is another set of four occupations, positive examples, good examples of jobs that historically have been perceived to be less skilled that have been successfully upgraded in the last few years. These jobs now command much better relative wages to the median, closer to the rate levels you see in Australia, the US, and the UK. So it's bank tellers, car vehicle mechanics, hairdressers, bus drivers. They earn a decent wage closer to the median now. In fact, our bus drivers appear to be paid just below the median in Singapore, comparable to the counterparts in Australia, US, and UK. Hairdressers in Singapore are doing amazingly well. I don't know why. <laughs> Much closer to the median wage compared to their counterparts in Australia, the US, and UK. The story of our bus drivers is interesting. Since the introduction of the bus contracting model and the entrance of foreign transport companies, it has injected competition and raised the game in the industry. Bus driving became more professional. The focus was on driving well, increasing efficiency, meeting the targets set by the Ministry of Transport on frequency, on timeliness. More women were drawn into the industry with flexible working arrangements and maternity leave. Dependence on foreign workers was reduced. Productivity went up, so did wages. Now, they're making about 96%, close to the median wage in Singapore. My last slide. Demographics is not about destiny. Economic dynamism is not about numbers. Dynamism is about quality, the quality of our workforce, the quality of our enterprises, the quality of our institutions. It is about high levels of efficiency and productivity. It is about growing our own talent base as well as being a magnet for the world's talents. It is about a vibrant entrepreneurial base and innovation. Lots of startups, lots of experimentation, lots of R&D. A key aspect of dynamism is also high rates of churn in the labor and capital resources in our firms. There is a continuous flux, reallocation of resources in response to changing economic and market conditions. Both capital and labor are nimble and highly adaptive. The structure of the Singapore economy, I think, is well suited for sustaining our dynamism. With strong and advanced manufacturing and the related trade and logistics activities are internationally competitive. Modern services, financial, infocom, telecommunications, and professional services enjoy international hub status. Together, these activities make up 40% of our economy. Now, if our domestic services can be further professionalized, job by job, with deep skills and a high quality of service, it will be a dynamic economy. Finally, dynamism will be about the quality of our people. We must remain an open society, not just being, an op not just being open in foreign trade, investment, and talent, but being connected deeply to the rest of the world not just attracting foreign talents coming here, that's important, but in also Singaporeans venturing overseas as our companies and our industries internationalize. Most of all, being open in spirit and mindset, being open to diversity, being comfortable to work in multicultural settings, to thrive in a globalized world. 
Second, we must remain a resilient society, able to ride the ups and downs of the business cycle and structural changes, able to adapt, learn new skills, continually improve. We must become a more innovative society to be dynamic, willingness to experiment, and accepting failure as a halfway house to success, investing in R&D, leveraging on technology. Most of all, having an enterprising spirit, always seeking new and better ways to do things. Finally, we must be an inclusive society. Not a coincidence, I think, that IPS has chosen to make the theme of this conference together. The two forces that offer the most promise for sustained economic dynamism of all countries, globalization and technology. But how far we can reap the benefits of globalization and technology will depend on how well we bring all our people together. The path of dynamism is also the path of continuous disruption, even dislocation. To sustain the momentum and consensus in favor of globalization and technology, we must help those adversely affected by them and equip them to succeed. And to maintain social cohesion in the face of population aging and growing healthcare burdens, those who have benefited from our growth and dynamism must contribute to the larger society through taxation, through philanthropy, community service. We then become not just a dynamic people, but also a compassionate one. Now that is, a worth, that is a combination worth having. I think the only one worth having. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ravi, for putting on the table the demographic trilemma, the trade-offs required, and balance approaches to the constraints, and for articulating the possibility of creating a vibrant future aging population notwithstanding. Next up, let us hear from Sean, who will share perspectives on redesigning jobs for our silver age to drive our thriving economy. Sean. Thanks, Uyen. Morning, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen. My name is Sean Tan, and I come from a, a company called Mercer Singapore Private Limited. Mercer is a global consultancy that uh, specializes in the space of human capital management and we help our client organizations thrive by advancing on their health, wealth, and careers of their most important assets, which is their people. Our mantra is to make tomorrow today, and we do this by building solutions today for challenges of the future. I lead the talent consulting services business for Mercer in Singapore, and have had the privilege of doing a fair bit of uh, consultancy work in the area of uh, job redesign in Singapore. It's a pleasure to be here today, I want to share some practical perspectives on the topic of uh, job redesign and hopefully it's useful for uh, organizations who have some interest in the topic of uh, job redesign. My topic today is entitled Redesigning Jobs for Our Silver Age to Drive Our Thriving Economy. I've been well advised that I have 20 minutes to make this presentation with you today. I want to make good use of your time to focus on three key areas. First of all, why bother about job redesign? Number two, what makes job redesign challenging? And number three, how do we make job redesign really work? Let me get started right away. Job redesign is a topic that is drawing increasing interest in recent years, and there are several perspectives that are attached to it. Uh, 
And let's look at those. From the labor market perspective, some of us would have already seen uh, this picture before. We will be looking at similar themes throughout the course of today's conversations. Um, let's look at some more actual numbers to get uh, a good handle on the extent of the issues that we are facing. Uh, these figures come from our Department of Statistics. Our local population size is about 3.5 million right now. And from 2025, this number is expected to fall gradually. Now, with the dip in overall local population, our local workforce will naturally take a hit. If we take a closer look, this slide shows the age distribution of our local people, and this is a snapshot taken as at 2012. You observe from this picture that for every one local exiting from the workforce due to retirement, there were two locals entering it, and this was the reality in 2012. If you fast forward to year 2030, just about 12 years from now, and we all know how fast time goes, this picture looks very different. For every one local exiting from the workforce, there will only be 0.7 entering it. With this happening, I think it confirms that our local workforce will indeed shrink. We also know that not only is the workforce shrinking, it is also aging. In 1970, for every one local who was aged 65 or higher, assuming that this is the proxy retirement age, we had more than 13 people aged between 20 to 64 deemed as the proxy working age band supporting that person. Now we call, obviously call this the age support ratio, and it was 1 is to 13.5 in 1970. Now 20 years later, the ratio fell to 10.5. Another 20 years later, the ratio fell to 1 is to 7.4. Last year, in 2017, the ratio fell further to 1 is to 5.1. Now, come 2030, the ratio will fall to as low as 1 is to 2.1. And this is the year that Changi Airport Terminal 5 will also open for business. And we know about the, the high level of uh, automation that we can expect. I think uh, <laughs> it's going to be interesting. We need to quickly you know, catch up. Uh, in view of the, the situation they are looking at right now. Now, if you are around my age, I'll probably be on the side of being supported on the left-hand side of uh, this ratio come year 2030. I think I'll really be appreciative of the opportunity to remain in the workforce for as long as possible so that I can alle alleviate the financial burden that I'll be putting on those who are supporting me. Now, for some of you who are much younger than me, you'll probably be still on the supporting side, which is the right-hand side of this ratio. I think you too will be very appreciative if those you support can remain in the workforce for as long as possible so that your financial load could also be alleviated. Now, irrespective of which side of this ratio we'll be on, I believe all of us in this room will have some interest to keep our people in the workforce for as long as possible. Let's look at some of the economic challenges associated with our labour market situation. Our Manpower Minister, Mr Lim Sui Se, has always been speaking very passionately about these issues. His talking points revolve around our economic growth, productivity, and also our foreign worker numbers. You see on this slide some of his sound bites about how our economic growth in recent years somehow followed workforce growth, suggesting that there is very little productivity uplift in recent times. Let's look at some detailed figures. If you look at the numbers for foreign workforce growth, total workforce growth, and uh, GDP growth, you see that the GDP growth numbers closely resemble the foreign workforce growth numbers. 
somehow suggesting that our economic growth is propelled mainly by our growth in the foreign workforce growth numbers, and productivity is flat. Mr Lim also passionately said that continuing to rely on foreign workforce growth to drive our economic growth should not be the solution. Right now, the ratio of foreign to local workforce is about one-third foreign, two-third local. And if the rate of growth in foreign workforce is allowed to continue, we will soon see a reversal of this composition. We will have more foreign workers than local work workers in the workforce. And this presents a little bit of a risk to our economy. Hence, the answer is clear. We need a deliberate plan to drive productivity growth. Now, what happened recently? PM Lee's New Year message brought some good news on our productivity rates. In 2017, our productivity shot up to about 3 to 3.5%, and this is up from the minus 0.2 to 1% in the recent past. Now, the question that I personally have in my mind are, is this growth going to be sustainable? How are our people doing as we lifted this productivity in 2017? Have our well-being as a people become better or worse? Have our people been working themselves to the bone to drive this productivity growth? Hence, the issue of job redesign becomes more and more important. We need to think about the job design carefully so that we can get the productivity lift that we want and still enable our people to be okay in terms of wellness, else we have other side effects like further aggravating our healthcare costs, which is already uh, escalating. Total fertility rates may get affected and families may even fall apart because people are just too overworked. Now, when we think about productivity uplift, one of the first words that come to mind is, of course, technology. Now, in the physical space, there are heaps of machineries and robotics, which you can consider to alleviate manual work. In the cognitive space, we have things like machine learning, AI, which we could exploit. Then there is this whole agenda on skills. We know that in recent years, Singapore has taken a Herculean effort to push for upskilling, reskilling, and also lifelong learning. I personally have had the privilege of leading large consultancy engagements with SkillsFuture Singapore to develop skills frameworks for various industries. And we understand why we do that. We want to future-proof our workforce. We want to future-proof our economy. We want to boost social mobility, and we obviously also want to boost workforce mobility. But we also know that if we just look at technology and skills in isolation, we are looking at a picture that is incomplete. We need to relook at job designs because the job design determines what work is to be done in a job and how the work is to be done. Without clarity on this, we'll be ill-informed in terms of the most suitable technology enablement that we need to introduce into a job and the skills that are needed to operate the technology to do the work. If we introduce technology blindly into a job, productivity may in fact take a hit. Job redesign is effectively the bridge between technology and skills. And in reality, these three things are very tightly and closely interdependent. If we ask 10 different people to give you their definitions of job redesign, don't be surprised to get eight or nine different answers. So I thought it would be useful to, promote, to propose excuse me, a comment definition for job redesign and job design so that we can have a common frame of mind as we discuss the topic today. Job design is simply a determination of what work should get done in a job and how that work should get done. So it's simply something that has a what component and a how component to it. 
And hence, job redesign is simply a relook at what work should get done in a job and how this work ought to get done. Now, it's not difficult to make a case for job redesign as an important national agenda going forward, but job redesign is not always easy to do. First of all, our economy is made up of organizations that are very different in terms of financial might, access to expertise, and this could be, there could be stark differences in terms of the scale of businesses and financial resources. Access to expertise. Some understand job redesign better than others. Some organizations have internal organization effectiveness functions with experts, while some others do not have the same luxury. Organizations have different tolerance in terms of the time that they're prepared to wait before reaping the benefits of their job redesign investments. Some organizations are prepared to invest more and wait longer in order to see a greater impact. And some of these impacts can cut across jobs and functions and give you an enterprise-wide optimization benefit. Some other organizations are quite impatient to see results and are prepared to accept that the impact will be a little bit more limited to single jobs or single functions. So to drive this agenda at the national level, we'll have to take these differences into consideration. There are also obstacles that stand in the way of a successful job redesign effort. There are many items on this slide, but let me just call out a few to you. It is often difficult to choose the right unit of analysis. Do we redesign what work gets done or do we redesign how the work is to be done? Do we look at the responsibility blocks or the activities or clusters of those? If you look at process maps, you find that they can exist at different levels of granularity so should we analyze level one, level two, or level three processes? It is also very challenging to predict a job before it even exists because we are modifying it along the way, especially if making changes to a given job affects what and how adjacent jobs are to be done. Also related to this is the view that sometimes the long-term effects are different from the short-term effects of job redesign. Efficiency improves with time and practice, and if the incumbent is initially unfamiliar with the work environment, it may not allow the benefits of the job redesign effort to be obvious in the short term. Another tricky matter is one of psychological security. We encourage organizations to closely involve the job incumbent in the job redesign effort. We do need to be very sensitive to the concerns that the incumbent may have. In the case of our topic today, this could be an individual in a silver age. Our experience tells us that especially for individuals in a silver age, when you mention the word job redesign to them, they get very nervous. They worry about whether it's an effort to remove them. They worry about whether life will get more difficult for them. And they're also potentially worried that you are attempting to redesign the job because you think that they're not performing well. So we ought to be very sensitive to their uh, sentiments. There are also myths that need to be debunked about individuals in a silver age or those advancing into it. One common myth is one of declining workability in both the physical sense as well as the cognitive sense. Let's talk a little bit about cognitive abilities. We found this uh, piece of research by Oxford University Press which breaks down cognitive ability into two components, fluid cognitive ability and crystallized cognitive ability. Fluid cognitive ability is involved in new learning or problem-solving performance. And generally, 
peaks somewhere in the 30s and then declines with age. Crystallized cognitive ability refers to intelligence gathered through knowledge and experience. There is evidence to suggest that individuals in the Silver Age are able to offset declines in fluid cognitive abilities with corresponding increase in knowledge and skills through accumulated experience. So how do we make job redesign really work? This view potentially shows how we could tackle the problem at the national level. This is Mercer's job redesign architecture. It has been tested with our recent engagements with government-related agencies. In 2016, we tested this in an engagement with SNAF, Singapore National Employers Federation, where we deployed a job redesign toolkit targeting the retail, logistics, FMB, and hospitality industries. The intent was to make the workplace more age-inclusive in these industries. We tested this again in 2017 as part of an ongoing engagement with Spring Singapore and Workforce Singapore. We developed job redesign solutions for a pilot group of seven retailers covering 36 jobs across all of the retail industry's subsectors. And we drove the actual implementation of these solutions. This architecture has several characteristics. First of all, it has a stratified solutioning model. This stratified model is meant to address the view that our economy is made up of organizations that have very different capability, financial might, and appetite for job redesign investments. On the leftmost side is what we call a quick start. It's a simple DIY guide, essentially a set of pre-packed solutions that organizations could deploy with little guidance on common issues faced. Now the caveat here is that it may only enable you to get benefits that are localized in a single job and may not be all that impactful. On the rightmost side is a full methodology that is more elaborate, we call this holistic. This may give you some enterprise-wide optimization gains, potentially very much more impactful. In the middle is what we call a light version the elaborateness of which is somewhere in between the two extremes. And this may give you benefits across multiple jobs, but limited to a single function. We like to draw a medical analogy here, a simple one. Uh, you can almost think of the quick start as like a pharmacy, which carries paracetamols, cough mixtures, and, and band-aids to cope with common ailments that uh, people uh, face and they want to self-medicate. This may give you a quick fix, but it may or may not address the root cause of your problem. The light version is like seeing a general practitioner, and the holistic version is that it's like undergoing a major surgery. Now, as you go from the left to the right, the speed of implementation may come down as the complexity increases, but the impact may get bigger. The effort may go up, and the investment of resources may also correspondingly go up. We also need to anchor this on a set of real success stories because essentially we want to nudge more business owners to do job redesign and we believe that the best way to do that is to have them know that their competition has done it and has done it successfully. To be successful in job redesign is all about balance. There are different schools of thought. There is the mechanistic approach which is aimed at simplification, standardization and repetition. The advantage of that is efficiency, easier staffing and reduced training. The disadvantage is decreased satisfaction and motivation. There is the motivational approach which is aimed at variety, autonomy, participation. The advantage of that is satisfaction and intrinsic motivation. The, the disadvantage is that of stress and errors. 
There are also other models. The key idea is to design a job that strikes a good balance and you get the benefits, avoiding the disadvantages. There are also common pitfalls to avoid in doing job redesign and to be successful. We need to consciously avoid those. On the left-hand side of this slide, you see some very basic job redesign methods like uncoupling, unstacking, and segmenting. And some of the outcomes are those that you see on the right-hand side of this slide. The job could be enlarged, which is not a bad thing. It could be enriched, which is often a good thing. Or it could be reconfigured. But there's also a risk that the job can get overloaded and very often a bad thing. There could also be tasks that fell through the cracks and are left unperformed. And uh, the job could also get impoverished, which is something that we want to avoid. This is one of my favorite slides, and please uh, humor me a little bit and, and listen to this, right? We believe that to make job redesign truly work, we believe that we need to take a step back and look at a bigger picture. We know that at the core and center of it, the intent is to bring about the sustained, gainful employment of our silver age population. And job redesign is just a means that is aimed at lowering the demands of the job to commensurate with the cognitive, sensory, and motor abilities of the silver age. And it's also certainly about job fulfillment. But guess what? We're also very circumspect and we understand that ultimately we need the business owners to invest in job redesign. We need strong business cases to convince them to do a few things. Essentially, we need them to start and continue employing silver age workers. We need them to start and continue investing in job redesign initiatives. And we want them to start and continue investing in age inclusive practices. But for them to be convinced, they need to believe that they can get better commercial games and business results from heightened work performance from the Silver Age. And as a result of the high performance, they get strong results due to job redesign. And for the Silver Age workers to elevate and sustain their work performance, they need continual training and mentoring because job redesign is unlikely to be a once-off effort. We might have done a successful job to redesign uh, you know, a particular piece of work before, but as business needs change, the job demands may also evolve, and hence we need continual uh, coaching and mentoring and training. Very importantly, as our workforce becomes increasingly multi-generational in nature, employees need to establish practices that enable the different generations to not only tolerate each other, but to start to enjoy working with each other. And as you can see, this is a circular issue that is quite often the critical point of entry to nudge business owners to take a leap of faith. I'm at the top of my 20 minutes. Uh, I want to just make sure that I share my contacts with you. Thank you so much for your attention. If there are questions that I don't manage to answer today, even after the, uh, the panel Q&A uh, segment, feel free to just drop me a line. I'll be most happy to answer those queries that you have. Thank you very much for your attention. Thank you, Sean, for presenting the imperative for job design, which provides a practical path to increasing our labor force participation rate, which Ravi spoke about. I should note that uh, job design can enable not just older workers, but also uh, women to re-enter the workforce. There are a number of different applications. I'd like to now kick off our discussion um, with a question that cuts to the chase. There are also microphones dotted across the room, so I encourage you to come up to the microphones. Please state your name and organization that you're from and then we'll pose that uh, as a discussion point to the panelists. Um, so if you'll just come up to the microphones, there are several across the room to pose your question. But let me kick things off first um, with a question to our panelists, which is, 
You know, given that we have a highly educated workforce, and increasingly so, as uh, some of the data that Ravi presented, longer life expectancy, uh, rapid technological change, what are some of the actions that government, educational institutions, employers, and indeed individuals can take to enable us to reap longevity dividends? So let me just um, pose that to either Ravi or Sean. Actions, yes. Um, I think there are, there's a lot that employers can do to make the workplace um, inclusive, irrespective of whether we are talking about age inclusivity or gender inclusivity. Um, and uh, I think one way to look at this is to kind of somehow allow them to see the commercial benefits of doing that. Uh, for some of the jobs that potentially are difficult to fill, and I think their history would show them that you know, uh, open requisitions that are taking more than three months or so to fill, um, or, or they have jobs that uh, you know, habitually see high attrition. Um, I think one advice that government agencies can give them is to look at alternative labour sources. Um, and uh, I think that that's one way of doing that, and, and also programmes to kind of uh, ensure that um, you know, the whole issue of multi-generational workforce um, to allow people in a silver age to demonstrate their value in terms of high performance. Um, but in order for that to happen, we need to make sure that the job design is supportive of that high performance. And in time to come, when the different generations see that, hey, you know, the people uh, in the silver age are able to make a very meaningful commercial contribution, uh, they start to have the respect for that population and, and acknowledge the fact that everybody has a, a meaningful impact uh, towards the commercial uh, goals of that organisation. So employers do have to take some proactive action so. to, yeah. to be open and to actually yes. adapt what they do. Yeah. Ravi, any perspectives on this? Okay, um, questions at the microphone. I'm seeing some people come up. Yes, thank you. Yeah, you name an organization, please. Yeah, um, Paul Tambaya from the medical school. Uh, I have a question for each of the speakers. The first question is to the first speaker. Um, the implications seem to be that uh, labor force growth was something that was really desirable and that um, we needed to address in, uh, in order to maintain GDP growth. Um, I have a couple of questions about that. First thing is, um, in the setting of automation, where many um, people, individuals, uh, for example, even radiologists and pathologists are afraid that they're going to lose their jobs to robots, um, it, and in a situation where we've got the highest rate of unemployment, resident unemployment for a decade, um, do you think that labor force growth is really something that we should be pursuing, or should we be, as the second speaker kind of pointed out, looking at, at how we can optimize uh, um, manpower, the existing local manu uh, manpower, so that every individual Singaporean really um, gets the best out of what they're doing and contributes most to the country, rather than depending on rising numbers of foreign PMETs. And the second question is to the second speaker. Um, it was a little bit depressing that you seem to suggest that uh, we all have to work until we die. <laughs> and, the, and the idea of retirement, I know some people want to look after their grandchildren, and I have this uh, pipe dream that I'll be sitting by a, a, a beach or the botanic garden somewhere writing the great Singaporean novel. Uh, and do I have to say goodbye to that idea? Thank you. Thank you, sir. Okay, um, let me take that first question. Um, so you're absolutely right. Uh, 
productivity growth is going to be much more important source of our overall economic well-being uh, than merely increases in headcount and labor force growth. I th in fact, that was a big theme of the second part of my presentation, that uh, labor force growth and demographics is not destiny. Uh, we need to seek new source of growth through heightened productivity growth. Most of our growth, if you go by the leading cities, three quarters or two thirds should come from productivity increases. Um, but I'm not sure we can afford to have zero labor force growth. Um, and the reason is this, where does productivity growth come from? It comes from innovation, improvements uh, in the way we do things, uh, efficiency gains. A lot of the knowledge that is required to do that is embedded in human beings. So that's the other change in the nature of productivity growth. It is less embedded in, like in the old days where you mechanize processes uh, through machines. Increasingly, it is in intellectual content. Um, and human capital increasingly plays a big role in this, which is why you need some degree of growth in the labor force. Not a great deal, not like in the past, but you need some increase. The second reason is that is the composition of your labor force. Um, given the advances that you spoke about, um, in order to harness those technologies and to use them intelligently in redesigning jobs and processes, um, it's not clear that we have the full spectrum of skills and talents that we need in order to do that. And we sell ourselves short if we don't harness top quality talent in each of these areas. So you do need some increase in number of people and more important, a shift in the composition of that group towards a variety of diverse skills that we don't currently have and we probably never will uh, in entirety. Even the most leading global cities in the world uh, are not self-sufficient. Um, given the range of human endeavor, it is bound to be the case that excellence is going to be strewn quite widely across different populations, uh, different geographies. And it's the great gift of cities that they're able to attract, agglomerate, create this um, um, port of, of buzz and enterprise. Uh, so that requires some increase. So I don't want to overstate the argument uh, about why we need labor force growth. Um, but to have zero means you are fixed with, uh, with the current endowments and, 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 uh, and, and range of skills, and that will not be a good thing. Thank you very much. Um, Sean, for the second Thank question. Um, I think deep inside, I, I have the hope that all of us uh, can be comfortably retired, either at the Maldives. If not at the Maldives, then you know, relaxing at Sentosa <laughs> after we retire. Um, I think the, the key idea here is um, how do we put in place a set of infrastructure and support systems uh, to make sure that the workplace of the future is not age prohibitive, um, either in terms of the work becoming too hard, the, the job demands becoming too, too high, outweighing the work abilities of the silver workforce, or that the culture is just not accepting, either because the multi-generational environment just does not believe that uh, the silver workforce is able to make a meaningful contribution. So I think it's, it's, it's that, to make sure that, you know, if we do want to work, we have the desire to do that, or if we have the need to do that, the workplace is not prohibiting us in any way from doing that. 
I would also add yeah. that uh, you know, in the past, the paradigm was really around you know, study for a certain amount of time, then you work for a certain amount of time, and then you retire for a certain amount of time. Yeah. And increasingly, those dimensions are actually all running in parallel. So we're going to be you know, working, learning, and enjoying, hopefully, all at the same time. Yeah. Let's open up to the next question, please. I'm from uh, Center Singbridge. So I had the privilege of working in both China and Japan for a few decades. And I was in Japan during the, right after the burst of the bubble. And what was really interesting was we had the phenomenon of an aging workforce. And there was a nationalist push against bringing foreign talent in. Mm. And I think that really hurt them because they focused on low-skilled laborers, which uh, wasn't really welcome. And the impact is Japan, as you see today, a slow decline and not much hope. Now, I know you talked a lot about the, um, how an aging workforce is important that we keep focusing on supporting them, keeping them into the workforce. One of the key challenges is actually in innovation and trying new things and risk taking. Mm -hmm. And what we often see in a lot of countries is that the young, the youth, when I say young, that's usually around under 35, and I'm generalizing, but what they do do is they take more risks, they do try new things, and when you talk to someone who is over 50, they don't. And I, I see in a lot of countries, the danger is we don't transfer the ability to take risks or transfer the wealth to allow people to take risks to, to the young fast enough. So what happens is that as your society ages, the transfer of the ability to take risks and wealth declines. And the danger for us is we keep focusing on engaging the silvers, but we don't really engage enough on how to get our younger people more participatory. Mm. So could you address that if you may? Thank you. Yeah, let me take a crack. Um, the academic literature is quite mixed on this question. It's an interesting question. Do uh, aging pop, do aging populations lead to a reduction in innovative capacity? On the face of it, it would seem to suggest so, <clears throat> as you correctly pointed out, uh, less risk-taking uh, and perhaps even uh, uh, less capacity to try new things. Uh, but the literature is mixed. I, I thought uh, Sean's example earlier was a very good one that we need to distinguish two types of abilities among the aged. Uh, obviously, they are fluid. I mean, his argument is that the fluid cognitive ability um, uh, declines, the ability to do, try new things and so on. I should not say very much about it because then uh, by his calculations, mine has declined about 20 years ago. Um, <laughs> but thankfully, uh, thankfully, he also points to something called crystallized cognitive ability. Now, we know this anecdotally. Um, Yes, risk-taking, learning a new software program probably comes easier to a 25-year-old. Mm. Uh, but there is something that is gained through experience. Uh, some in the literature call it tacit knowledge. They can almost instinctively smell. And in, in, and in most economic activity or business enterprise, you need a balance between risk and return, between the ability to take risk and the ability to sense, to judge. Um, 
where the facts can only take you so far, the empirics can only take you so far, but you need to judge. Um, that ability to judge does seem to grow with age. And it is finding the right combination of this. Now, I agree, in some settings, uh, there may not be much uh, that requires uh, a large number of aged uh, people to be working, or seniors to be working. But in other areas, it well could be. Um, certainly, in the financial industry, I would like to see a very careful balance between risk and return, between innovation, and between management of, of risk. And to the extent that this might be associated with age, and again, I think this is only one variable, uh, the whole set of other factors at play, um, I do think there is scope. But I don't want to belittle the challenge. Uh, it is not a given that there is uh, 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 opportunity and scope for, for, for the silvers among us in all areas of human endeavor. Sean, yeah. Just want to share a couple of ideas. Um, we believe quite deeply that in order to promulgate uh, practices like this, uh, and here we're talking about you know, inclusivity, uh, we, need success, we need some real success stories. So uh, this is where I think uh, large enterprises and government agencies would stand a better chance because you have a wider and broader access to a, a much uh, bigger uh, workforce. I'm sure in your workforce, it is for those that are particularly large, uh, organizations, it is possible to identify one or two uh, individuals in the silver age who are a little bit more accepting of newness, uh, may have a little bit higher risk appetite, so to speak. Um, I think it is possible to engineer an arrangement where we involve them in a couple of projects with people from the younger generation and to also be quite deliberate in terms of identifying those representatives from the younger uh, pool of people, people who are a little bit more accepting, collaborative, and to kind of fashion a, a nice success story that you can kind of tell the entire organization to show that that is possible. And if more of that happen, actually we get more organizations prepared to make that move. So we are not talking about um, you know, being hypocrites here because these are real individuals, but we are essentially talking about um, how do we heighten the, the chances of success and by using real characters, allowing them to make real contributions and then almost celebrating that in a way that is a little bit bolder and allowing people to know that it is possible. And I do think that it's important for us to guard against some <clears throat> false demarcations yeah. in that um, you know, when you think about older versus younger, some of the most successful startups are actually a combination of young and old. Yeah. So you've got the younger who are coming up perhaps with a concept, but then when it comes to execution, you need the experience to actually take it forward, to use that as an example. Yeah. And let's open up to uh, the next question. Over to the right, please. Hi, good morning. My name is Sheena, and I'm from the National Institute of Education. So I'm here with two questions. The f actually, both are open to both speakers. So the first one is, we've spoken a lot about compensating for a decline in fluid cognitive ability with an increase in crystallized cognitive ability. But how do we, in some sense, deal with or account for the very real biological changes or decline in psychomotor capabilities that mm. necessarily come with aging? Yep. And the second question is, actually in particular, if Mr. Sean Tan could address this. Yeah. Um, today we've spoken a lot about sustain, sorry, sustaining employment of older workers and helping, helping older workers continue to find gainful employment. But undeniably our economic practices are influenced by the prevailing social context 
in which workplace discrimination, as mentioned by previous speakers, is a very real and very unfortunate thing. Mm. We already have things like the Tripartite Alliance for Fair and Progressive Employment Practices, but what more, in your opinion, can be done to help address these social misconceptions and help older workers continue in their, well, search for or in their current employment until presumably when they want to stop working? Thank you. Mm. Thank you, Sheena. Um, so firstly, the, the part on uh, compensating for any declines in any sort of abilities that may come with age, uh, we, we do um, acknowledge um, that uh, you know, it may differ from individuals. But uh, I think the, the key idea here is job redesign ought to be taken to uh, make sure that two things happen. Number one is to elevate the workability of the individual. Second is to lower the demands of the job. So depending on what sort of job that we're talking about, uh, it could be as simple as visual aids, hearing aids, um, having larger displays on the screens, having decision-making aids to kind of say that, hey, if this happens, do this. If that happens, do that. Um, and this has happened before. Um, in the um, F&B industry, Laurie's Prime Ribs does particularly well in this. Uh, instead of carrying heavy trays, they have nice trolleys that are chrome and, and it looks really good and elegant. So instead of having people carry those trays, they have kind of changed the, the way in which the service is being rendered and they have iPads for the ordering of uh, food. Um, and not only does that uplift the, the efficiency and the level of customer service, but it also reduces the, the demand on the individual. So that's one. And then there are a couple of examples. Hans uh, does particularly well with very simple uh, interventions. Uh, to make sure that the person can continue to contribute um, and, and not only that, but do it well. The second point about um, sustaining employment in the face of discrimination, I think we need to get quite real with this, right? Um, and uh, there are, I mean, even if we oversimplify the problem, we're talking about two groups of people, people who are likely to discriminate and people who are likely to get discriminated. So both populations ought to be spoken to and engaged. Um, we need to kind of convince some of our um, colleagues who may be in a silver age to be a little bit more accepting of change because that is the order of the future. Um, and we need to kind of almost convince them that, hey, you know, your continued employment is hinging on your willingness to change. And hopefully, through enlightened self-interest, they are a little bit more willing to go with um, whatever change initiatives that the company requires. And on the, on the other side of it is almost teaching our younger population to be a little bit more mature, uh, that, you know, um, and prepared to try and uh, wait for the results to show for themselves. And uh, if they want to be a good corporate citizen, this is the, the, the way the world is going to change. We are increasingly going to see workforces that are more multi-generational in nature. And do you want to be a good corporate citizen or not? I think the other thing um, that's probably quite important is we need we need success stories, we need yeah. role models. I mean, yes. there's a lot of yeah. storytelling involved yeah. that helps to over time change the societal attitudes, Sheena, that you talked about, starting at the individual level to the organization and eventually to the societal level. I think we have time for one last question. Thank you, uh, Dr. Gaiman. Um, uh, both um, speakers gave an ex uh, excellent presentations, but I'm not very clear. Uh, you both mentioned inclusiveness, which is, of course, um, politically very correct. But I 
would like to question you a little more about what you mean by inclusiveness. Um, in the case of uh, Sean, uh, you talked about job redesign very um, convincingly, but it seemed to be a dialogue between the designer and the employer. You mentioned several times that you had to convince the employer, which of course you have to. Mm. I'm just wondering whether you could include the employee as well, yeah. or yeah. you do include the employee in your dialogue or your trilogue mm. on job redesign, because obviously you want it to be as inclusive and as dynamic as possible. How can you not include the person who is going to be actually doing the job? Um, and in the case of Mr. Menon, I would like to ask you, Mr. Menon, you um, mentioned that dynamism is not about numbers, but quality. And uh, you gave three points. The last one, which was also included inclusiveness, innovation, inclusiveness, uh, resilience. But it seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, dynamism does tend to lead to inequality. Uh, uh, yes. And so how would you build in inclusiveness into this? It's in the fact uh, uh, that there's a tension between inequality and um, uh, uh, inclusiveness. Um, you, you also showed some slides, uh, some very memorable slides on different jobs and how they approach the median. And uh, the two that I note were bakers make a lot in Australia and hairdressers too in Singapore <laughs> seem to um, surpass the median. Now, could this be because, not because the average income of bakers in Australia hairdressers in Singapore is very high, but you have a few star celebrity hairdressers or haircutters in Singapore that raised, so, so the median is a reflection of inequality and therefore, to my mind, not inclusive. Thank you. Um, Thanks for the question. So firstly on uh, inclusivity or inclusiveness for that matter, a couple of years ago, I've had a chance of uh, meeting the head of uh, DNI because usually inclusion is coupled with the other word, which is diversity. I've had the pleasure of meeting the head of DNI of Bloomberg, um, and he put it very, very elegantly. He said that imagine you're at a ball, right? You're at a ball, and um, diversity means that you are tolerant of a person who is different from you being at the ball. But inclusion means that you're inviting the person to dance with you at the ball. So I think this is very elegant. And what it means is that um, for real inclusivity and inclusiveness in an organization, uh, we need to get the multi-generations to play together, to enjoy playing together, to enjoy working together. So that is, that is for real. And for that, they have to have seen the benefits of um, having done that before. Hence, you know, hate to sound like a broken record, but it goes back to real success stories that we shouldn't leave to chance to occur. We should actively create those so that we can talk about it and uh, encourage and engender, you know, the furtherance of, of that. The second point is about involving the incumbent. Uh, certainly, as part of our job redesign methodology, a big part of it is involving the incumbent uh, in the design, which is why it is a very open-ended undertaking. Uh, 
and, and which is what, again why one of the points that I stressed uh, during my segment is to not blindly introduce technology into the job because if you do that in a way that is indiscriminate and disregarding the abilities of the person which can be unique, you may not get the benefits that you potentially can get. So there is a huge part in terms of incumbent involvement, asking the person to share with us what makes the job difficult for him or her and how he or she could be better supported with and it's not just tech, it's not just technology, it's also about streamlining uh, um, the, the processes and also uh, re-delineation of responsibilities across different individuals such that you kind of allocate those pieces of work that are best suited for whoever individuals in the play for that job redesign effort um, to give you the most optimal results. Thank you. Ravi? Um, very good questions. Um, well, first, um, I think being inclusive is not about being politically correct. I think it's the morally correct position to take. <laughs> and I think uh, if each of us is convinced about it, I think we'll make a lot of progress on that front. But not there yet. Um, and by inclusion, I, I mentioned three things. Uh, taxation, the ability of societies to, to sustain dynamism, continue to open to globalization and technology, and deal with the dislocations is going to depend on the government's fiscal resources to a great extent. And on top of that, when you have the effects of demographics and, and population aging, um, the willingness of a society, especially those who have gained from it, to pay in taxes to support those less well-off uh, is quite critical. You see this in the small European countries. Uh, they do this quite well. And I think this is one of the existential questions we have to address. Um, but it's not all about governments. And this is another thing that, uh, 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 that sustains dynamism. It is about dynamism in the people sector, in civil society. Uh, community help, philanthropy, community service all play an important role. I, I agree that uh, dynamism does not automatically lead to an inclusive society. Uh, but I would also argue that the answer is not that uh, lack of dynamism is going to get you a more equal society. Uh, sometimes the growth versus equality debate is overly conflated. Um, what I think the experience of the last uh, 10, 15 years has shown us is that growth, dynamism, globalization, these things produce a lot of prosperity, has produced a lot of prosperity and inclusion. Uh, it has, however, also failed miserably on some on some accounts. And so it's not a guarantee. So being a dynamic society is not a guarantee that we will be inclusive, but to sustain that dynamism, to sustain that openness, to sustain that go-getting spirit, we do need to be inclusive. Mm. And the two go together. Uh, that was my main point. Uh, very quickly on the uh, hairdressers and, uh, and bakers, I, I must confess my ignorance about uh, the baking industry in Australia. Uh, I was intrigued about the hairdressers in Singapore. Um, so what I'm going to say is not, uh, it's not authoritative and probably more research needs to be done. I did ask myself, is this because some of us take $100 haircuts, um, elaborate hairdressings? Um, the, from the little I've researched on this, uh, it is also to do with an increase in efficiency and productivity with the proliferation of a lot of very small setups the $10 haircut in 10 minutes, uh, the people who do that are pretty well paid, close to the median. Mm. Um, and they, 
thrive on uh, efficiency, process improvements, cleanliness, and a certain good quality, a, a high enough quality for a very large number of Singaporeans. Uh, as someone who goes there myself, I must uh, attest to, to that quality. Uh, but I will check the numbers. Um, the, the issue posed by outliers does not affect the median. Uh, it affects the average. So we should be looking at these from a median to median perspective, and I think that's a useful suggestion. Um, but really, the larger point of uh, these illustrations about occupational wages, it's also about inclusiveness. That Every job has dignity, every occupation has dignity, work has dignity, and the more we recognize and practice that in our societies, in the way we, wages are determined, um, I think that goes a long way towards being an inclusive society that also creates a strong middle, middle class amidst demographic aging and keep us dynamic. Thank you. We are unfortunately out of time for this session, so I want to close by referencing back to 1859, which is when Charles Dickens wrote in A Tale of Two Cities, it was the best of times, it was the worst of times, it was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. We had nothing before us, we were all, we had everything before us, we had nothing before us. We were all going direct to heaven, we were all going direct the other way. In Singapore, we are likewise a study in contrast, yet we are in this together, and there are choices to be made, as you have heard from our two panelists today, that need to be done so in a holistic manner, if longer lives are to be a blessing and not a curse. If we want to move ahead to create a society that is dynamic and compassionate, I like the words that Ravi used earlier, across class, race, gender, age, and so forth, there will be inherent tensions and we need to manage them. So I just leave you with a parting thought which is what sort of society do we want and what is the role, what are the actions that each of us can take on an individual level to make this happen. Thank you all for contributing to the dialogue and please join me in thanking our insightful panelists, Ravi and Sean.